0: 10 Minute Talks, a podcast in which the world's leading professors explain the latest thinking in the humanities and social sciences in just 10 minutes. Hello, uh, I'm Kieran McAvoy. I'm a Professor of Law and Transitional Justice and a Fellow of the British Academy, and I work here in in Queen's University in Belfast, and this talk is part of the Imagine Belfast Festival 2021. Um, The field that I work in, Transitional Justice, is the field of dealing with the past. It's basically societies that have come through conflict or periods of authoritarianism, what they do to address past violence, past human rights abuses, and things like truth commissions, amnesties, reparations programs, helping victims, dealing with ex-combatants, um, apologies. These are the kinds of, of areas that I work on. Um, I've worked in about 12 different uh, post-conflict or post-authoritarian contexts around the world. And I've also, with colleagues here in Queens, Louise Malender and Anna Bryson in particular, worked very closely um, with the local human rights NGO, the Committee on Administration of Justice, on trying to find um, lawful human rights compliant ways of addressing the past here in Northern Ireland and drawing upon the experiences of other societies in in doing that. Um, And the key challenge um, that we face here in Northern Ireland is, on the one hand, how to address the needs of victims, particularly around around truth, um, around what happened here in the conflict, while at the same time in the last three or four years there's been a particular pressure coming from Britain um, about addressing uh, the needs of veterans. Um, And so how do we strike a balance between those two things? That's the focus of of my talk today. Um, the, uh, well, the dealing with the past in Northern Ireland has been a quite a significant challenge. William Faulkner um, famously said, the past is never dead, it's not even past. And that's certainly the case in Northern Ireland. Um, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in, in 1998, the people who negotiated took the view that if they had tried to include provisions for dealing with the past, for example, the Truth Commission as part of the negotiations, they never would have got the deal over the line. Um, and that was probably true at that time. It was already a very complicated um, set of political negotiations. What that meant, however, is that after 1998, what we've had is a piecemeal approach to the past, wherein different bits of the criminal justice system have, in effect, been carrying the load. So we've had police investigations. We have a very small number of of conflict-related prosecutions. and We have had um, investigations by the police ombudsman's office. We've had the inquest system. We've had a number of very high-profile public inquiries into particular events, Bloody Sunday being, being the best known. But no overarching way for dealing with the past. Finally, in 2013 and 14, after lengthy months and months of negotiations, um, a deal was reached between the British and Irish governments and the five main local political parties here in Northern Ireland, called the Stormont House Agreement, um, to set up mechanisms for dealing with the past. Um, draft legislation was ultimately prepared. It's a very long process, this, but prepared in 2018. A draft bill was circulated um, um, for a public consultation 2018 into 2019. Seventeen and a half thousand people responded to that consultation, um, and then the government were due to introduce the, the act in uh, January of 2020. The British government um, said that they would introduce the act within 100 days, um, as part of the agreement to re-establish devolution here in Northern Ireland, um, and that was under the previous Secretary of State Julian Smith. So that was January 2020. By March 2020, Julian Smith had been sacked. Um, And there was some speculation that it may have been because of his role in in negotiating this particular um, legacy provisions of of that deal. And he was replaced by Brandon Lewis. Brandon Lewis then in March of 2020 um, said in a a statement in Westminster that while the government was still committed to the spirit of Stormont House Agreement, um, that they were uh, minded to make significant changes to that. And that uh, secondly, that they were also um, uh, minded to... Uh, introduce equivalent levels of protection to British soldiers as was being uh, as were being put forward in a, in a separate bill for for veterans who served overseas. So, in other words, hinting at an amnesty or a statute of limitations. So, rowing back unilaterally from a position in January and to um, where they they were going ahead to implement the deal within 100 days to two months later, rowing back unilaterally and and and, and stepping back from that deal. That um, that unilateral step went down extremely badly on this side of the Irish. The Irish government were very upset, and many of the local, three of the local political parties saw this as a unilateral U-turn on the part of the British government. And then COVID came in and and, and so the the legislation is stalled and that's that's where we're at, basically. So in terms of what's in the Stormont House Agreement, this thing that has created so much controversy, um, it's a a complicated architecture, but there are four different mechanisms. One of those mechanisms is an independent police-led investigation um, into outstanding conflict-related cases, like a cold case review in effect, um, and that mechanism called the Historical Investigations Unit. Um, A second mechanism is, is the Independent Commission on Information Retrieval. Um, and it is it is a, a mechanism wherein um, ex-combatants or former security force personnel could give information um, within a particular institution, knowing that that information can't be used for prosecutorial purposes. So it's, it's designed to facilitate uh, information or truth recovery going to victims, but not prosecutions. The third mechanism is an oral history archive, which is a storytelling mechanism, um, a way in which people can um, have their their um, experiences of the conflict recorded for posterity, um, and that, would, that That would be uh, uh, beyond just deaths. Actually, for uh, exploring all kinds of different themes, for example, it could be gender, it could be the experiences of um, nurses, doctors, people who worked in the health system, any any aspect of people who were affected by the conflict. And the fourth element is called the implementation and reconciliation group. It's designed to pull together the big picture narrative of what happened during the conflict. So that's the the victim centered set of mechanisms that were agreed in two thousand and fourteen and were meant to be introduced in twenty twenty. And the other side of the equation is the the veterans issue, and there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in uh, in, in Britain, around a so-called uh, witch hunt against veterans, um, a witch hunt in, in terms of investigations and prosecutions of veterans who served here in Northern Ireland. This was stimulated in part um, by a number of, of cases coming, conflict-related cases emerging and, and, and coming before the courts here in Northern Ireland. Um, the Defence Select Committee held hearings, and gave evidence to them in 2017, where they basically advocated for a, um, a statute of limitations and amnesty, in other words, um, for British soldiers, knowing that in reality that amnesty inevitably would be applied across the board to the non-state actors, to the paramilitaries as well. So to summarise the, the witch hunt narrative, it's fake news, essentially. Um, since uh, 2013, the DPP in Northern Ireland, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has initiated 17 legacy prosecutions, eight against Republicans, four against loyalists and five against British soldiers. The problem in, in, in terms of the state killings and during the conflict is that they a lot of them were never properly investigated in the first place Um, so for example between um, 1970 and 1974 there were 170 army killings here in Northern Ireland 63 percent of those people who were killed by the army were indisputably unarmed only 12 percent of those people were actually armed 14 people were possibly armed no prosecutions at all took place during that period And the investigations themselves were done by the army themselves, by the the Royal Military Police. And they were very, um, uh, uh, in many ways, very poor investigations, Um, sometimes taking the form of a debriefing. Witnesses often weren't contacted or interviewed. People weren't interviewed under caution. They just don't stand up as investigations. And so what's been happening is that as those old cases have come up and being properly investigated by the police now, in a small number of cases, um, evidence has emerged that would meet the standard for prosecutions, and then those and then a f- small number of people, as I say, um, six cases, five, uh, five cases, six soldiers, have ended up before the courts. The bottom line is that no one's going to jail for more than two years anyway, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. State or non-state actors, the maximum anyone can go to prison for is, is, is two years. So, how do we do this? How, how do we square this circle? Um, on the one hand, addressing um, the needs and rights of victims to to information recovery about about what happened um, during the conflict, and the second, the political pressures which are which are primarily in Britain and um, around the, the addressing the needs of elderly veterans who served here. How do we square the circle? So, here's my suggestions as to how we square the circle. First step one. We actually uh, introduced the Stormont House (laughs) legislation that the government um, agreed to with the Irish government and the five local political parties in 2014 and has been stalling on since and and live up to the uh, the commitment that was made in 2014 and restated in uh, January 2020. So introduce the legislation that will bring some closure um, to victims after all, all of those years and work in partnership with the Irish government and the local political parties. No more unilateral moves. Secondly, in terms of addressing the veterans issue I mean, I think all of us who've worked on these issues recognize that it is a political pressure point. This is a populist right wing conservative government um, and it is addressing, you know, people who have have, uh, significant concerns about the military. So there's a political problem there that needs to be addressed. An amnesty is not the way forward on that, um, because, first of all, an amnesty would apply across the board to the state and non-state actors. Indeed, any mechanism that we, we look at will inevitably apply to, to both state and non-state actors. But it's opposed here in Northern Ireland across the spectrum, both by nationalists and, and, and unionist parties. No one on this side of the, uh, none of the main political parties on this side of the water have argued for an amnesty. So that's not the way forward. So what we would suggest is a, is a kind of a halfway house in a sense. What, what should happen is that the Stormont House Agreement should be implemented there in addressing the needs of victims, but there is a legal mechanism that already exists under the Northern Iron Sentences Act, which was the legislation introduced to facilitate the early release of paramilitary prisoners and indeed any serving soldiers um, in 1998 under the Good Friday Agreement. It's the, me- it's the legal mechanism that establishes the two-year max jail time for conflict-related offences. The power already exists to reduce that two-year max to zero. So what would happen in that context is that you would still have investigations, you would still have prosecutions, you still have a trial if the threshold was met, but then no one's going to jail. And that's the compromise, in effect. The rule of law is upheld. Victims would get all of their rights addressed via the mechanisms of the tax agreement. But the political problem that the government's facing around the pressure on veterans means they would be able to turn to their backbenchers and say, look, no one's going to jail. Here is the compromise. And that's our job, essentially, as as academics, as being to try to encourage lawful and human rights compliant and politically workable compromises in all of this I'll, I'll finish on this point um my son is eight years of age and he's, he's obsessed with horrible histories and i was watching it with him the other night and there's a character in horrible histories called mr hexagon and who has a, a fake chat show with uh, uh what he terms he, history's craziest foods which focuses on the follies of historical figures and, and his catchphrase in all of this is to stay away from stupid yo that's what he says at the end of everyone so in this context where um the government my, Appear to be thinking about introducing an amnesty for British soldiers while at the same time reneging on commitments that that have been made to victims. Um, In in a politically volatile context like we are in Northern Ireland uh, post-Brexit and all of the rest of that, um, this would be folly in the extreme. So my advice to Boris Johnson and to his government would be please stay away from stupid yo. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.